Observability consists of metrics, logs, and traces. Lightstep is a company that builds distributed tracing infrastructure, which requires them to store and serve high volumes of trace data. There are numerous architectural challenges that come with managing this data, and Ben Sigelman and Alex Kellenbeck join the show to discuss the implementation of Lightstep. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. It's good to be here. You started Lightstep around the time that container orchestration was becoming popular, monitoring and logging and tracing were becoming more prominent, and the observability stack was changing. And one of the trends around then was Google infrastructure for everyone. And since you have started Lightstep, the industry has evolved, and I'm wondering how Lightstep has evolved relative to the Google version of infrastructure. When you think about what infrastructure experience you guys had at Google and how that compares to the Lightstep version of observability today, how do they compare? That's a good question. So um, just by way of introduction, I'm Ben Sigelman, and I was one of the co-founders of Lightstep, and I'm joined by Alex. Alex, do you want to briefly introduce yourself and your background? I'm an engineer, software engineer, and have worked with Ben for for Ben with Ben for many years. First, first at Google. And Alex and I met in 1947. <laughs> Feels like it. No, I mean, I think we actually met and started working together in 2005. So I think yeah, we met in 2006. I'm pretty sure you gave, a, you gave a talk about dapper wearing a very dapper suit. That's oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Alex and I have been working together for a long time, and and did Alex was the brains operation for most of the heavy-duty observability stuff we did at Google. And we worked together on both Dapper, which was Google's tracing system, and Monarch, which is actually, Alex came up with a name for Monarch. It was the monitoring architecture. That was the joke. But it's Google's central kind of time series collection, storage, query analysis solution, kind of a la like a metrics solution today. So we have spent a lot of time seeing things at Google. And then at Lightstep, it's... um. Quite a bit different, actually, and for a variety of reasons. I think the biggest, I don't know what you think, Alex, but at Google, things were so big that you had to trade off scale and feature set. And so there's this totally mistaken idea that people should try to emulate what Google did. And a lot of the time, that's a terrible idea because if you're, I don't know what the public, I think the public number is that I remember that Google's doing 5 billion RPCs per second or something like that. Uh, I think the actual number is quite a bit larger than that, but that's the ridiculous scale. And if you're going to operate at that scale, you have to throw out like almost every interesting feature you might want to build. And that goes for, you know, observability and monitoring, but also goes for many other things too. So the thing that's a bit sad to me is that there's been a tendency to emulate things that were done at Google and Lightstep for what it's worth in many ways was a reaction to the work that we did at Google or a version trying to attack the same problem, but with technology that was better suited to the scale of most enterprise software organizations, which are actually quite a bit smaller than Google in terms of that top line throughput number. Alex, I don't know what you think, but that's like my super zoomed out quick take on things. Yeah, no, I think that's totally true. I would just add also that the, you know, this is true of Google. I think it's true inside of inside the ecosystem of any other large company. Um, the, the clients, the things you're monitoring are just much more homogenous and well-behaved, right? We, we controlled a lot of the client, the instrumentation software. 
um, that was on the client side. And so we could often trade off functionality there against things that we you know, either did or didn't have to build in the monitoring system. And there's a lot less flexibility when you're dealing with a, you know, sort of a third party and trying to monitor their stuff. You have to do a lot more work to meet them where they are typically. And then I would say on the flip side, on the product side, I hope we talk more about this in a few minutes, but um, I think that our thinking, especially Ben's thinking, has evolved a lot since back then. We were, we were very much, I'm going to say a dirty phrase, right? But the three pillars were things that like we believed in and everybody sort of believed in. This was you know, back in the, you know, 2009, 2010, and even for quite a bit longer. And I think the industry as a whole, but also our own thinking has, has come a long way. And Those three pillars being metrics, logs, and traces? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think what happened at Google is quite similar to what I've seen happening in many organizations now as they move to Kube and things like that, where you obviously have a logging system. You've had that since you know the dawn of time. Uh, you probably have somewhat robust metrics system to do squiggly lines and charts and things like that of you know infrastructure all the way up the application stack. And then you get a distributed system and you already have like a ton of investment and debt in your metrics and logging solutions. And so you just add tracing as like a separate thing. And then you end up basically with like three UIs that might be connected by hyperlinks and tabs, but you end up with these three UIs. And I think I remember when he built Monarch, that was pretty greenfield actually. It would actually, it might be interesting, Jeff, if you think your listeners would be interested to hear a little bit about Monarch and what preceded it which is this thing called Borgmon, which is Prometheus is modeled after very directly. And we could talk about that. But but part of the pitch for Monarch was trying to do a little bit of very light unification through exemplars. So the idea was that you're going to be able to do monitoring via Monarch of latency. And then for latency outliers, we would have example trace links that you could go and look at. And we built that in the initial prototype for Monarch that we built before we invested an enormous amount of time and energy into that project had that functionality as kind of a spike. So there was like some very loose integration and I would consider that be very loose integration. But the actual value, particularly of the tracing data is not the traces themselves. It's it's all the information encoded in the traces, especially in the aggregate. And at Google, we never took advantage of that in any of the real-time analysis stuff and where you know people are actually solving problems and responding to incidents, at least not before I left. Alex left after I did, but I don't think, um, my, to the best of my knowledge, that never happened. And at LightStep, we've dumped a ton of energy into that because I think that's really where the space is headed. If you have distributed tracing, it's more, that data is it's like the underpinnings for a lot of analytical features that don't actually show you traces in the UI. And I think that's something that we've spent a lot of time kind of laboring over and building functionality around. So can you tell me about the data path for collection and storage of metrics, logs, and traces? You mean at Google or, or in the sort of, you know, your average... Well, I guess in a in a broader sense, like give me an outline of where metrics, logs, and traces get collected and the path, the maybe the, I guess in broad brushstrokes, the path it takes to get stored and queried. And then we can talk about how you do it at Lightstep today. Okay. It's a tough one because there's so many different ways that it's done. I mean, Alex, do you have a quick take on that? I can. I mean, I, not, not a quick one. I, I think there's, so there's definitely not one size fits all. Um, and some of the work that OpenTelemetry, which is an open source project that, that Ben 
well, was was involved in founding a, a sort of predecessor of it, and Lightstep is involved, but there are many other companies involved. It's kind of an open source instrumentation layer that aims to kind of unify a lot of the, the question you just asked. How does data get out of the process, out of the application, and, and to somewhere else, to a vendor? Is aiming to unify that, but people are all over the place right now, right? So, you know, the kind of simplest version is you have a sufficiently intelligent or, or, or fancy instrumentation library and your process itself is making direct RPC or, or, or HTTP calls out to just push the data directly to a vendor. But people have all sorts of things that they layer on top of that or, or in between the application uh, and the vendor, either for security reasons or to dec- sometimes to decorate the data with additional information, right? Sometimes your process doesn't actually know itself all of the, the tags or, or the attributes that you want attached to the data. And so you put some intermediary in the middle that does know that metadata information and it attaches it as the data goes out. Sometimes you ask the vendor to do that on your behalf after that your data has already reached the vendor. I, that wasn't a very you know good answer, but the, but the, the real answer is that it's all over the place. People are doing all sorts yeah. of different I, things. I would say that data out. what I've noticed, and I was actually just talking to some folks from the, some of the fluent bit maintainers yesterday, you know, separately. And, and we were talking about some of the logging data and for logging in particular, the, the data is used both for what I would call quote unquote observability use cases. So like instant response, ad hoc analysis, that kind of stuff, but it's also often used for security or for even like bean counting. And like, you know, we want to use the logging data to figure out how much money we made or something along those lines, in which case it's extremely important that you don't drop it. And in those cases, there's a desire to have the logging, you know, the logging infrastructure actually has to run like in the same VM as the process so that if there's a network issue, it can buffer and catch up and things like that. I've, to my knowledge, I've never seen that. That need has not existed to my knowledge for, for instance, tracing data and very rarely for metrics data. So I think there's a, a little bit of tolerance to data loss I mean, not huge, of course, but a small tolerance data loss for metrics and traces, which for much of the logging data is, is not like as acceptable, I think, because of those business reasons. Ironically, with Dapper, we ended up just for expediency reusing the logging path that, again, was also used for things that were pretty vital at Google and were you know written to local disk. And that was a huge mistake. In the paper that we wrote about Dapper, you can see like where the system hits some scaling limits in the sense that like Dapper, full bore 100% sampling Dapper actually has interference effects and will affect the application you're observing. Like it'll create latency and throughput issues. And that was largely because we reused the logging path that writes the local disk. And the second you're like taking a ton of tracing data and making syscalls about that, you start interfering with applications that are also trying to make syscalls, um, especially to local disks that, you know, at the time were actually pretty slow. So the long and short of it is that the logging path for business reasons, I think, ends up being more expensive than it needs to be for observability use cases. Uh, this is one of the many reasons that I frankly think most logging should probably die, at least by volume. It's just like not the right tool for the job. The tracing data I also want to is a little different than logging and metrics. For the logging and metrics data, you can think of as a true pipeline. I mean, you can decide, you know, wh- where you want to send things over the network and where you don't. But like there's a pipeline until you get to some central data store. But the tracing data, it's a lot worse because there's also this assembly stage that you can do gradually or all at once, but you have to take the trace, which you know by definition is distributed, and you have to take it and assemble it somehow. If you assemble all the traces in a large application, it's, well, it's, suffice to say, super, super expensive to the point that you aren't going to do it. 
So you have to be selective about which traces you decide to assemble. And there's a whole nasty, nasty, complex set of optimizations that you have to consider around that, especially if you want to be smart about which traces you assemble. But the trace the full end-to-end lifecycle for the trace data is not so linear, where you have to assemble enough to decide which traces are interesting, then go back in time and actually do the assembly for those interesting traces if you want to do it well. And you know, we started with Dapper. We did not think that through, frankly. With LightStep, we did. And it has massive architectural implications for the whole collection pipeline. And it's an area where I still think there's a lot of catching up to do to what's possible. But the tracing one is worse than the others because the data structure itself is distributed. And as far as the storage system for LightStep for metrics, logs, and traces, are you using, I, I guess I'm, I'm a little unclear. So are, are you, do you use any off-the-shelf databases to serve it or... Can you differentiate between like the storage and the serving layer, and if if those are different, Alex, it's all you. Yeah. So those. So for so we have a, a, a bespoke homegrown thing that that we my team wrote um, that in it's it's modeled on a bunch of lessons that we learned from the very big systems that we learned at Google, but at this point is you know diverged quite a bit in the details. But it's a in sort of broad strokes, it's a it's an LSM, a log structured merge tree based thing. You know, it's pretty efficient for high volumes of writes. We index a bunch of stuff, all the data as it comes in using the dimensions that we you know know we're going to care about at query time, and then the query serving, the query serving, and to some extent also the kind of arithmetic that we that we like to do on especially the metric data, the aggregations, the you know the rate computations, and so forth. The, the serving and the arithmetic is, is also built into that same process into the same database. And the, and the thing is distributed, it's just sharded, right? Um, you know, by customer for large customers across many machines. And you have this sort of standard serving tree roll-up from lots of lots of leaf serving machines all the way up to a single root to get your final answer. So that part of the architecture is pretty traditional, but in all of the details of the software, it's we have sort of a homegrown specialized thing. Alex, what was the I mean, I sort of know the answer, but what's the problem with using like an off-the-shelf horizontally scalable database for this sort of data? Yeah, I mean, so at the risk of speaking generalities too much here, I think I think there just aren't very many particularly good ones is part of the answer for these workloads. I think that you can, you know, you can get a certain distance by taking something off the shelf, uh, but you hit a certain point where you can realize radical improvements either in query serving speed or ingestion efficiency or in cost by writing your own thing. And we felt like we, you know, we had the experience from having done this before to kind of jump right to that. And, you know, I think for the most part, that has borne itself out. We, we, you know, we're pretty happy with what we've got. And I, I can be a little bit specific. You know, the kinds of the kinds of benefits that you get versus something off the shelf. Time is a very special dimension, right? As soon as you're using any kind of database that doesn't understand time as a special dimension, you're kind of immediately giving something up for this data and these kinds of workloads. You want something that that understands uh, how data needs to be downsampled or aggregated or evolved, how it needs to be indexed over time. So that's kind of one example of, of a, a special feature of this data and this, this product space and this workload that you really, really want that idea to be built right into the database at the very lowest level. There's a, you know, there's a few more sorts of things like that that I won't go into detail, but that's a, a kind of canonical one. Yeah, Jeff, one thing that that we also realized with LightStep was that the, the tracing data or structured logging data, which is pretty similar at, at the storage level anyway, and then the metrics data on the other side of it, I think typically have been thought of as being somewhat incompatible from a storage standpoint. Like you, you don't see a lot of time series databases that are 
designed for metrics workloads and for structured event or tracing workloads. And I mean, if you want, or you think your listeners would care, I think we could talk about why that's generally been the case. And it is true that if you just take, you probably can't find a database that's purely built for one that will also work well for the other. I think what Alex figured out based on, I think the experience we had was that you are able to share almost the entire like query evaluation structure, as well as the very lowest level of the storage if you're able to kind of swap out certain part of the engine, particularly around ingest for those two different types of data. And that's allowed us to build a unified query model that works for either type of data without any special casing and a unified actual, like the the lowest level durable storage is also extremely similar. But then there's this, this piece in the middle that can be customized and we don't have to worry about divergence of those two. And I was saying earlier about having the tracing data inform other analysis. That basically means you have people to do joins against tracing data from other sorts of data, which is something I think people have not been able to do historically, and certainly couldn't do it at Google. And the engine that we have in place on top of this data layer is able to do that because of that, in my mind, pretty clever sort of realization. So that piece, I think, of what we've done is, is actually pretty interesting from a software standpoint. Can you go a little bit deeper into the query path for... You know, if, if I've got a dashboard and I'm continually loading metrics, or if I have some kind of standing query against tracing tracing collection, what the query path looks like. Yeah. So for I'll leave the, the standing query part of the question aside for just a second. But for both the metrics data and and for much of the trace data, as I said, it's sort of a traditional serving tree. So query query comes in, it comes into some sort of you know root query server, gets fanned down. You know we find the right pools for whatever customer is making that query. We find all the machines that are involved, and we send we take the query. And depending on what the query is, we kind of chop it into the piece that can be evaluated by the leaf, and then the remainder of the query that needs to be kind of evaluated up at the root. We tell all the all the kind of leaf serving machines, "Hey, do your part in this." They each have a you know a subset, a shard of the data. They get the query in. They look at their indexes. They fetch the data, depending on how old the data is, either from disk or from memory. Perform their part of the query, and typically they the output of of their part of the query execution is some kind of partial result, partially aggregated. It's a rate computation that's been partially evaluated across the history of a time series. They do as much as they can, and then they bubble up those partial results up to the root mixer that had queried them. And it does kind of whatever reassembly is necessary across those partial result sets, computes the final answer and bubbles it back up to the to the client. So I think one of the, none of that is particularly novel at all. There, you know, there are a bunch of interesting bits in there about, okay, how do you, do you have to do some query analysis? What portion of the query can you safely ask each one of these leaves to execute? And you want that portion of the query to be as large as possible, right? You want the leaves, the leaf machines doing all of the work that they can because the root ends up being sort of a bottleneck. Um, so there's a lot of interesting technical problems there, but that's that's kind of the broad shape of things. I agree that from an academic standpoint, it's not novel at all. But in practice, there's a huge problem right now, I think, for, I mean, a lot of the open source monitoring things that are out there were designed with like, a, they, they were, I think they were designed originally with the idea that you have a single very large machine doing a lot of the query evaluation and the storage. And then you'd have like maybe a backing store for some of the super historical stuff. And then you realize that that's not going to work. And so you add other machines and you and you kind of like manually shard the data out. 
And that ends up being a very difficult thing operationally to maintain. And so you, the solution of doing these partial aggregations, it's one of these things where you think about it in advance. It adds some complexity, but it's sort of doable, but it's a very difficult thing to shim in after the fact. And this is actually really what led to the creation of Monarch in the first place, is that Borgmon, which it replaced, didn't think about this in advance. And as a result, we had every team at Google running their own Borgmon instances, which was just very painful because it, once it had to be sharded, you had to do that rebalancing manually. And the query evaluation was you know, either incorrect or inefficient or both, depending on how it was done. So this ended up being like, a, it's a pretty important and often lacking, I think, aspect of like the query evaluation path for time series data. Because what Alex is saying about pushing the computation down, if you don't do that, you have to take a ton of data and stream it up to a single node for evaluation. And I remember with Monarch, when we made the change to push that stuff down, and it's like, it's not like a small improvement. It's like a 20x improvement in the query latency when you make that change, not to mention cost. So it is like, an, it's an important and sort of subtle point, the, the idea of doing these partial aggregations, because it frees you up to like ignore the difficult sharding problem and make it into an easy charting problem. And then query evaluation gets a lot faster. I don't know if that makes sense, Jeff. It's easier with the diagram. No, I think I get it. I think I get a sense for it. Can you talk more about maybe the optimizations you've made over time to improve the query latency or, or cost optimizations? I'd just like to hear about optimizations more generally. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a lot of, I mean, you know, for light step was, was acquired uh, by, by a much larger company, by by service now last summer. Um, and, you know, prior to that, we were small and moving as fast as we could and didn't necessarily have a lot of time to do all the optimizations that we wanted to. So there was a bit, so there's a bit of whack-a-mole. The customer complains about the problem. We chase it down as quickly as we can and hit it with a hammer. It was a little sort of scattershot, but in broad strokes, the query workload that you tend to see for this stuff is very bimodal in the sense that by volume, most of your queries are related to automated automated callers, whether that's you know your own alerting infrastructure, right? Your customer comes in and says, hey, please alert me when such and such is true and, and please evaluate this expression every every minute for me. So we're you know we're running those continuously all the time every minute. And so by volume, almost every query is one of those things. And those queries tend to be over very short time slices, right? The, the most recent five minutes of data, maybe, depending on the alert expression. Another class of queries that's completely different, which is a human coming and sitting down at a dashboard or, or making a manual you know, API call or whatever, where typically they're looking at much, much longer histories, a day, a week, a month, whatever it is, and also typically doing much more complicated uh, operations inside inside their query. So there's a sort of balancing act. We, we want the first class of query to be kind of cheap to execute because there's so many of them, but we don't necessarily need it to be fast. We don't need the latency to be particularly small, except in as much as it helps the cost, right? So if you're alerting query, you know, if it takes 200 milliseconds to run or it takes 150 milliseconds to run, you don't, you don't see it. You're not sitting there waiting for the result to come back. So we can play some games with sort of trading off, you know, delaying those things if we need to, as long as they get done in a, you know, a sort of timely fashion relative to that one minute cadence. On the other hand, when you get one of these big dashboard queries that you kind of know is coming from a human, you want to get that thing done as quickly as possible. Um, and so there's a bunch of games to play there with 
you talked about, you asked about standing queries. You can pre-compute some of that data to some extent, and there's a game to play about which data to pre-compute, which data to pre-aggregate, which data to downsample. And you try to play that guessing game uh, in an informed fashion so that you know most of the queries that a customer wants to render on a dashboard get served out of this pre-computed or pre-aggregated or, or, or otherwise downsampled data so that it's faster. And you prioritize those queries ahead and so forth, as I said. So those are some of the sort of optimization games you end up playing. But it's a, it's a, I don't want to say it, it's very much a balancing act. It's one of the reasons I like this workload and like this space is that there isn't a one size fits all solution by any means. And the things you want to do for those different classes of queries often tend to kind of get in the way of each other too. Yeah, I think also the optimizations. One of the advantages of, I don't know, Alex. How many time series? storage systems have you built in your life do you think I don't know. it's like four it depends five four or five i don't know yeah i mean i think a lot, the, a lot of the optimizations are sort of things that are in the past to a certain extent like i know that for just to you know call to take the blame or something with monarch i had some ideas about like the way we should do certain things early on and i was probably right about query latency, but very, very wrong about cost. I shudder to think how much Monarch costs to, to to run in its initial incarnation, but it was at the time it was kind of like in memory or physical you know, spinning disk disk, not like SSD disk in the very early days. And so we were really trying to avoid disk for the query path and managed to fit everything into RAM, but it turns out like it's pretty damn expensive, right? And doing this nowadays, you can rely on SSD if you think about formats and things like that. And I think, Alex, you cleaned up a lot of my mess, some of which after I left Google, actually. But but that's... Nope, nope I, came, I came to like seven instead. We're doing <laughs> <here. But laughs> Sorry, Google. It's, it's a very difficult thing to build one of these systems where it's both you know reasonably fast and reasonably efficient from just a dollar standpoint. And I think some of the stuff we did at Google was replacing a very slow system with a very expensive system. I think what's appealing about the approach that we've taken is that it does split the difference on that, you know, to a certain extent to improvements in networking and storage. It's not like those were available when we did the work at Google, but that's, there are a bunch of important optimizations that I think we could talk about if you want, Jeff, that we did at Google that are relevant to the design we chose with Lightstep and has resulted in like fewer massive optimization needs just because the fundamental design, I think, is more appropriate for the workload. I might add also the cost structure of your hardware or your, or your cloud provider, I think, affects a lot of your decisions. And you just hope to goodness that they don't change the relative costs of things underneath you significantly because it changes your, you know, your design decisions. You know, in, in, inside of, of Google, we were getting sort of our the compute resources were coming kind of at cost, right? Or, or even sometimes below cost because we could kind of slurp up extra unused stuff that other teams weren't using in a particular cluster. That informed some of our decisions about the architecture when we're out, you know, on the outside and you're paying kind of list price <laughs> for those same resources, you make different decisions. I, you know, for an example of that, if you're just going to go poke around the internet and look for blogs and I had, you know, build your own time series database, there's a lot of focus in those, in those sorts of things on, well, what, you know, how, how should you encode the time series in, in order to make them as small as possible? And that's all fine. But I think sort of misses the point that if you use a reasonably good encoding and you have some reasonable compression, your disk costs, most of the cloud providers, end up being you know a minority of your of your overall costs. It's really the CPU and to a lesser extent the RAM that ends up getting you. And so we spend a lot of time, more time relatively speaking, kind of focusing on minimizing our CPU footprint rather than trying to minimize our disk footprint. And you can imagine the kinds of the different focus that you would have given that one resource is, is much more expensive relatively than the other. When you look at the usage of 
Lightstep, have you seen any evolution in terms of how customers are monitoring their products and monitoring their infrastructure? Any new sort of observability design patterns over time? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, definitely for sure. I mean, there's some things that are in the buzzword category, but they're worth mentioning. I think there's certainly been more of a focus on SLOs in the last couple of years than there were in the first couple of years of Lightstep. And I think is okay. The people are jumping into SLOs headfirst without really thinking through some of the issues with the kind of maintenance plan for SLOs, I think. And a lot of times they're being set without much thought to what's above or below someone in the stack. So I think there have been some growing pains in the SLO front, but that does affect the design a bit if you're going to make SLOs the starting point for understanding, well, you know, reliability, I guess, at the level of an individual service. Another thing that I've noticed, and this is something that I'm very pleased about, but in the earlier days of Lightstep, we much of the vendor pitch around what would now be called observability was really about how much coverage do you get from an agent? And that was a lot of the differentiation was actually like how much coverage do you get from your agent? And then the analytical piece was kind of trivial and also not that powerful. And I think there's been a greater need for like need, need for analytical power, I think, just because the systems are so complicated and you have to debug in production and that sort of thing. And so there's been, you know, more of a focus, I think, to deliver actual value on that front thing, on that front, which I think is wonderful for customers. But also the agent piece is just being totally commoditized by open source and open telemetry in particular. And that's a great thing, actually, really for everybody. I mean, for customers, most importantly, I think they don't take a vendor lock in the way that they decide to get data out of their system. As it used to be that you were very tightly coupled to your vendor because if you switch, you're going to lose instrumentation coverage. And it's a great thing that that's not the case with open telemetry. And so we see open telemetry as a sort of strategic priority, I think, for a lot of the customers we talk with. That's, I think, great for them. It's also good for vendors, actually, because Lightstep didn't kind of fall into this trap. But I think for some of the more like legacy APM providers, they were spending 80 plus percent of their R&D resources were going to agent maintenance and agent, you know, implementation, agent implementation. And that's a really, really expensive thing to be, you know, dumping like smart people into, especially given that for cloud native and stuff like that, you end up with this unbelievably broad surface area of technologies and languages. So the agent thing was just getting kind of unfundable almost. So the push towards open telemetry and open source yeah, open source instrumentation in general is it's something that's changed a lot in the last couple of years. And I think has moved the playing field for observability much more towards the analytical side and much less towards the data acquisition side, which, as I said, is being commoditized. I think that's a it's difficult to overstate how big of a difference that's making in the industry. It also makes it much easier for smaller observability vendors to kind of spin up and get started because they don't have to tackle that problem head on. And that's part of the reason why the space is so crowded right now. But I think that's actually a really good thing. It means there's a lot more innovation and experimentation happening and people are finding new ways to apply this data. So that's another thing I'd highlight that's that's changed pretty radically. I would say in the early days of Lightstep, before we kind of created the open tracing stuff, people thought it was a bad idea. People are telling us like, oh, no one's going to adopt this. It's not going to work. And I think it totally did work, which is great. But it's had a, a significant effect on the way that the whole ecosystem has evolved, I think. So open telemetry, I guess, as you're describing 
essentially democratizes the agent and data collection process so that there's less vendor lock-in? Yeah, I think the mission of the project is to make high-quality telemetry like a ubiquitous thing, especially for cloud-native software. I say the cloud-native not because open telemetry has any particular dependency on cloud-native, but more because there is... I think there's a limit to what you can expect to like retrofit for open telemetry. Like, you know, a lot of enterprises are doing some, you know, totally ultra modern Golang cube thing, but then if it calls down, 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 and eventually it's a mainframe, right? So open telemetry support in the mainframe is zero right now, right? So it does have its limits. The project is maybe bigger than it needs to be at some level, but it has an incredibly broad surface area. So you have SDKs that can be dropped into the actual process itself, as well as kind of agent-like things that can be deployed on the host, as well as a collector, and then a whole suite of protocols, mainly OTLP, the open tracing, the kind of open tracing wire protocol, it's a protobuf thing uh, that can be used for interop between various pieces of you know, infrastructure and open tracing compatible kind of, I hate this term, but middleware for lack of a better word. I also think a lot of the cloud providers at this point, I mean, Amazon in particular has devoted a lot of resources to hotel open telemetry, but the cloud providers are now emitting open telemetry protocols from their managed services that are closed source. And that's a, a really important development as well in terms of not just democratizing the data coming out of the application, but also coming out of its dependencies even like hard, you know, hardware network stuff like F5 and so on, also like emit OTLP. Um, so you can get this lingua franca for uh, visibility into a variety of software and hardware that's both managed and not. So it does reduce vendor lock, but it also, I think, provides some compatibility and consistency in the way the data is described. Uh, the thing I think we still need to do a lot of work on, well, logging is just getting started, really. Metrics and tracing is in a better place, but there's the logging stuff is so brownfield, it's going to take time. But then the semantic conventions are like the next piece of this. Like there's a level of actual wire protocols, which I think is going well. But then there's a question of like, well, what is the actual string attribute you use to describe the name of the process or the host name and things like that, which are you know, fairly simple. But then the diaspora of things you might want to have consistency around is just unbelievably broad. And for better or worse, a lot of large companies have already invested a lot of time in their own set of semantic conventions. So there's this you know long process of just kind of coming up with standard definitions for how you describe the different pieces of the data. But once you get to that point, um, it allows you to build the next level of standardization, I think, around monitoring itself where you can have a more declarative approach to monitoring, just like open telemetry gives you a more declarative, democratized, as you put it, approach to telemetry. And I, I think that'll be a really powerful thing, but frankly, we can't do it until the semantic conventions have been stabilized and they, they just haven't in their entirety. I want to talk about a little bit of something that we discussed over email, which is a unified data layer. Can you explain what you mean by a unified data layer and what engineering problems are associated with that? Yeah, I mean, this is something we kind of touched on briefly a minute ago. I'll hand off to Alex in a second. But when I was talking about how time series data and event-oriented data have historically been pretty segregated, actually, at the data layer, and I think we have found a way to have them stored in a way that's both efficient and expressive and in a unified way. Alex, do you want to touch on that at all or, or sort of what, you know, maybe what the type of approach we had at Google versus what we're doing at Lightstep just to kind of compare and contrast. 
Yeah. So, 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 so maybe there's maybe there's three different layers or, or heights that we can look at this. So, the, sort of the bottom one is is what we were talking about earlier, which is just sort of the, the storage, the, the the most basic storage and and serving layer, the thing that's responsible for keeping the bytes on disk and you know keeping them intact and giving you back the right bits when you ask for them. So that one, you know, as we talked about before, we we have kind of di- we have different instances, pools of, of these of the sharded database for different customers, for, for different data types. But I would say, you know, something like 90 or 95% of the code is the same across these things. And it was, you know, this thing we were talking about that's optimized for, you know, high ingestion rates and indexing is similar across all of these types of data and so forth. So that's kind of one kind of purely engineering driven goal, right? You just want a single code base, a single, a single database set of functionality across all of these things, if you can make it work. And I think we've been pretty successful with that. I can give one really quick example. We used to run Kafka for a variety of part of our ingestion pipeline, and it was we're not Kafka experts, we're not Java experts. We'd, we'd run everything else in Go, and we said, This is just we're not good at this operationally. Can we get off of this thing? And we managed to whip together in just a couple of weeks a, a Kafka replacement using this database that we have built for, for time series uh, and for traces. We built one that looked like a pub sub. Kind of, we kind of, what's the, what's the word? When you make your Winamp look different, we skinned it. Is that the word for it? I'm dating myself. And it worked great out of the box. And we don't use Kafka anymore. It was really delightful because that workload had the same sort of, you got a bunch of pieces of data coming in. They're timestamped. You want them in order. You want to get back to the ones you asked for. When you asked for it. it worked out really great. So we're pretty happy with that just kind of a technology perspective. One level up from that is the query layer, right? So you want to be able to, when you kind of query these, these databases, you want to be able to join and aggregate and mix and match the data, right? I want some time series data. I want to join that against some information that might exist only in the traces. And I kind of want that experience to be unified. And when I say the caller here is typically could be an, an end customer calling in through an API, or it could be my coworker who builds something in, in the GUI part of the product calling in. They want that experience to be kind of uniform across the different types of data. So that's kind of the second layer of unification, that uniformity that you might want. And again, I think we've done it. I think we have more work left to do there, but it's, you know, it's getting there. And then I think the hardest one, and then I'm going to make you answer this part again at the end, the hardest one is on top of that at the product layer. How do you make these different kinds of, of data feel uniform inside the experience of the product. And I think that's a super challenging one. Yeah, I agree that it's challenging. And there's two types of unification that can happen. One is just literally having the same UI components and the same query model from a, whether it's a simple programming language to do queries like a you know SQL, PromQL type of thing, or if it's a UI, having the same semantics for the two types of data. And I think that's something that we have actually solved just actually very recently. And you know, it reduces the cognitive load to learn how to use the system because you don't have to learn a different way of querying and understanding these two types of data that were typically quite siloed. So that's the first piece. The second piece, which I think is actually ultimately going to be more profound, but I think is is harder to explain, unfortunately, is that I'll try to explain it by example, because I think if it's done too theoretically, it's just going to be like a bunch of words. If you're dealing with an everyday kind of systems problem, like your CPU just spiked or your memory usage just spiked or something like that, that's the problem with the resources in your system, CPU, memory, whatever. And you need to understand why that happened. I would argue that, I mean, it's difficult to put numbers on this, but let's just say the lion's share of the reasons why your resources spike is that your workload changed. And the workload is tracing data. The resources are not. And being able to pivot from everyday infrastructure spikes to like a principled analysis of how the workload changed and particularly why the workload changed 
requires a pretty deep join between these two types of data. And that's almost impossible unless you can have some kind of unified data layer like this, at least to do it efficiently. And yeah, it's quite powerful. Like if someone above you in the stack did a software deploy and it turns out that that version explains perfectly the issue that you saw from a CPU spike, what you should be told is like, hey, this software just got deployed above you. Here's the before and the after. You look at the data. And by the way, like here's the username of the person who made that change. You want to get in touch with them or file an issue or something like that, right? So that sort of thing, the hard part is is about joining from workload to like infrastructure and back. And I don't know how to do that without unifying the data layer. And I think the reason why a lot of people struggle with that type of thing today is that, frankly, that unification doesn't exist. So you see the spike and then you go off into another tab and start issuing queries to see what's going on in that host or something like that. And at that point, you're stuck in like human mode and not in computer mode. And that that's like a very slow and, and tedious process. Does that make sense, Jeff? I mean, that I think Alex did a good job with the technical piece. I don't know if my piece made sense. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I understand. I would just tack on at the very end there. So at Google, at least at the, at the, as of the time I left and wasn't involved, we had done a good job at unifying that bottom layer, right? So we, we had a similar kind of thing where, you know, 90% of the, of the storage code was kind of similar across these different kinds of data. We had make, made no progress whatsoever on either of the, uh, the top two layers, the, you know, the kind of query integration, query unification, or, or on the product, obviously, above it. And I think that's coming back to something Ben said, this is a place where, Google's scale kind of got in the way. We needed to do things that were efficient at such huge scale that it kind of got in the way of doing some of these kinds of unifications. And I think it's a place, happily, <laughs> where the rest of the industry, Lightstep and others, right, we're not the only people with these ideas, are kind of actually ahead of where the, the very largest players are, precisely because we can operate at smaller scales. As we begin to wind down, I'd like to get a sense for what else is on the roadmap and more broadly speaking what's beyond a metrics logs and traces is it just improving the ui and the usage and the infrastructure around metrics logs and traces or is there some kind of uh, higher level observability stack to build i'll take a shot at that so First of all, I mean, I think of the logging and the tracing data as converging in and of themselves. I mean, almost any log is either about a transaction or about some kind of resource, like a you know a VM starting or stopping or something like that. If they're about a transaction, that should be just part of the trace. I mean, you should stick the context on it and then it is part of the trace. So there's a convergence happening there. And there's a lot of benefits to that convergence for customers in terms of both features and cost, actually, because tracing, the, the way that you can do sampling and data size reductions and traces is a lot more sophisticated than logs because you have more context. So I see there's a convergence happening there. It's not going to completely replace logs, but I think it will replace a lot of the logging volume. We'll be moving towards the tracing workload where you can be smarter about ROI. Speaking of ROI, I think for metrics, especially in cloud native, where you have a lot of microservices, if you look at the usage data, you know, this varies, but it's not uncommon to see the data that's collected is often more than 10 times larger than the data that's queried for any purpose. I mean, literally any purpose and not even getting into whether those queries were valuable. So you had this massive asymmetry between the amount that's collected and the amount that's used. And to me, this is grievous and frankly, customer hostile. I don't think there's been a lot of vendor interest in addressing this issue because that 
first number, the data collected happens to be their revenue stream. So it's like solving that problem is pretty dangerous from a business standpoint. But I will say that's something that LightStep, I think, feels is unsustainable. And I think we're just leaning into addressing it directly. So maybe that sort of is a little bit of a hint about roadmap for metrics, but that's just the data. When you talk about the application of it, certainly there's a lot of marketing message about unifying these things, but when you actually get down to it, it's often the unification is just an HTML where you'll take charts that might come from different pieces and put them on the same dashboard. But the unification of the data layer is actually very, very, very early for most players in the space, whether that's open source or closed source or whatever. And I think that's an area where we see enormous potential, enormous potential. Again, I was giving some quick examples, but when that's actually done, I think people are going to spend, you won't have to be an expert in observability to take advantage of the more sophisticated techniques. It'll be much more accessible. And then I also think observability today is something that's only discussed in the context of engineers. The applications we're observing are actually quite diverse, but usually are customer facing. And in that sense, they have a lot of value to the business in general and not just for engineers. So I think observability that's able to see inside these applications can also be taken advantage of from a customer success standpoint, security standpoint, which I think has been, people are starting to move in that direction already, but also things like finance and operations and planning and so on, provisioning, all these things should be taking advantage of observability at the level of individual transactions. And today they generally don't. So I think observability use cases really ought to broaden beyond the engineers writing the code and maintaining the software. For what it's worth, the ServiceNow piece that Alex mentioned earlier has a lot to do with that. That's always been our vision was to make observability useful to as many teams as possible. And I think ServiceNow has built a pretty impressive platform for like a variety of like employee facing use cases that often are outside of engineering. And I think we see an opportunity to take advantage of that and, you know, make observability much more applicable than it is today. But that's more of an out year thing. And that's not happening, you know, all at once. But I'd say in the next several years, I'd expect that to take place. And hopefully we can be, you know, leading the way on that. Cool. Well, guys, thank you so much for such a wide ranging conversation on observability and what you've been up to at LightStep. It's a pleasure, Jeff. <laughs>